0: Just breed and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners to Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet Uh and I hope you've had a good fortnight or since you last heard from us. But um yo, know, we're we're gonna be on your airwaves for a long time because you can pick up this on your on your internet at any time you like and downloads. So um today we have continuing with a theme that we've had often on our show um someone to talk about property rights and takings and the lack of compensation and all the things that we've talked about for eons on the show um and so i'd like to introduce margaret byfield who's the executive director of the american stewards of liberty now why did i come across margaret well i was watching a Epoch Times documentary that's just recently been released called "No Farmers, No Food," and I saw this lady eloquently talking about her family's, her, her mum and dad's property in Nevada, and the the problems they had and the the battle they had for twenty seven years um, pushing back uh, against the state. Uh, so it was a Hage versus the the United States, um, and it involved uh, their cow and calf operation in Nevada. So, welcome to RCR Greenwashed, Margaret. We're really happy to have you on because property rights, on my belief, are at the nub of everything we do uh, and, and face uh, private property rights. Now, why do I say that? Well, when I was chairman of Federated Farmers of New Zealand, my mantra was, it was our reason for being was, uh, to maintain authority over property for our members. And you know, I thought we did that okay, but 15 years on and the cold, hard light of day, I realized I failed and uh, we're all failing uh, unless we keep talking about the stuff we're gonna talk about today. So at the outset of this, uh, I'd really love you to give us some background on yourself and your parents' uh, f- uh, fights and then uh, how the American Stewards of Liberty founded. it
1: sure. Well, thanks for having me on. It's it's nice to talk to somebody in a different country about property rights. Um, you know, that it's a topic that's dear to us. Um, in America, that's really the core principle that we were founded on. If you want to talk about what makes our nation distinct, you know, people talk about, well, it was founded by we the people. We didn't appoint a king. You know, it's supposed to be run by a representative government. And we have a brilliant constitution and bill of rights that really has served the country very well. So we have, you know, the Second Amendment, which is to bear arms, and we have the Fifth Amendment, which is to protect property rights. We have free speech. We have all of these great things. But what our founders understood is the only way that the people could um, retain those rights and protect those rights and control the government was if the people owned the land. So America was founded on that concept that um, that the people would own the land. And that's why. As different purchases were made, like the Louisiana Purchase was made from the French, which doubled the size of the country in Jefferson, President Jefferson's time. You know, they they um, disposed of all of that land to the citizens, and people could go out and stake 120 acres up to 640 acres, under depending on which state they were settling in, and that became their land, and that created the middle class in America. But that was the concept uh property rights were so important to the founding of america and they were they were certainly protected what happened though is uh, when the western states were settled so you have 13 western states that go you know california all the way over to colorado um up in that area but pretty much the the, the one-third of the nation uh to the west coast when that part of the country was was settled um our Um, politics changed. And we had the robber barons at the time that created, you know, developed oil, developed steel, created the railroads, and they became very powerful, very, very wealthy. And they just really decided that um, they did not want uh, the, they wanted to control the resources. If they controlled the resources, they would retain their political power. So through some political ma- maneuvering, they actually changed that concept in America and um, and the, most of the West it became federalized. So most of the Western states in America are federally owned. 50% of the Western states are federally owned. So our we, we ran a ranch. We purchased a ranch in Nevada. It was 1,100 square miles, which is actually an average size ranch in Nevada because it takes so many acres to feed a cow. And, um, but a good portion of that, so we had 7,000 private deeded acres and we had everything else was federal grazing allotments, which under our system of laws meant we owned the forage and we owned the right to graze. We didn't own the land, but we did own that right to graze. And we also owned the water. Well, um, we bought that ranch about the time that the conservation movement, the radical environmentalists were really getting a foothold in America. And so they really came after our family. Um, and really, tried to make us a test case of, of pushing ranchers off the federal lands, and that's kind of how we came the eye of the storm at the time. It resulted in us filing a case in the in the our court system, and we ended up spending 27 years in court fighting that battle. We won every round, even to the point that the claims court awarded us 14.4 million dollars for the taking of our property. But uh, once we got to the D.C. Circuit, they actually dismissed the case on technical grounds, so standing and ripeness. So, we never got to the merits of did we own the property, what property did we own, which was the key issue that my parents were trying to resolve for the Western landowners. So, it was really out of that battle, and there's there's some harrowing stories of what they did. If you really want to understand government tyranny, we have a whole pile of stories of how they – pushed us to get us off the land, but, but probably the first thing to understand about that whole case is that the federal land management agencies filed a claim over all of our water rights. So, uh, in the West, we we didn't own the land, but we did own the water, and mm-hmm. water is what controls the land. Yep. So, they they filed a claim over all of our water rights, and then they used the regulatory pressures to push us off the land. And so that then they would be in line to acquire that that water, so that's really what our case was about. But um, so that's and that's also what got me into the property rights movement. Uh, just growing up and seeing that when the government owns land and they can tr- when they own that kind of land, they can absolutely control your future and they control your liberty. And that's I think the key thing to understand about property rights is we either own property or we are property. And our opponents know this, which is why they don't want us to own property, because then they can control us. That is such a powerful line. You either own
2: property or you are property. And uh, I think, you know, you've given us a brief overview, Margaret, but if I point to a couple of instances specifically that happened to bring forth to our listeners the tyranny that you're talking about, and I don't use that word lightly. The U.S. Forest Service during 105 day grazing seasons served you with 70 wizards and 40 certified violations. I mean, how many mistakes can a person make in that? And then they told you that uh, you are not maintaining the fencing of a particular mountain there. And that mountain being that steep and that uh, rugged took three days, one day to get there, one day to have a look at the fences and a day to come back. And the person who inspected came back and told you that in 25 miles of fence, one staple was missing this is what your family exactly. dealt with god yeah. talk about you know <laughs> literally into the eye of the fire that's quite uh, a grounding and i have do you looking back at that now today what what do you think has changed or what has not changed because we are talking about this battle going back to the 70s 80s and through the 90s uh, what has changed in america since then
1: well, I think when that happened to us, we were one of the few people that was happening to. Now it is they're even more powerful. The administrative agencies have even more control. Congress has less control over them. So that they are getting away with this and doing this to people, uh, quite a few more people than they than just us. So I think that's one thing. Um, the administrative state in America has gotten stronger, not weaker. And mm-hmm. so... That's and, and particularly under this administration, the Biden administration is really the first, I think, that has just come out and pretty much just decided I I don't need to um, comply with the laws because the agenda is what we want to put in place. Then it doesn't matter. The laws don't mean anything to him. And so I think that's what's really become very obvious to the people is when we went through ours, we we recognized, we knew that we had a lawless federal government. The regulatory agencies did not follow the law. To do what they did to us, they did not follow the law. Now, I think most people in America see that, that our federal agencies do not follow the law. And if they, if your government doesn't follow the law, that's that's a very, very terrible position for a country to be in.
0: Yeah, and, and I look at um, what you've just mentioned or listen to what you've just mentioned and put it into a New Zealand parlance, um, Jaspreet, and the last six years especially, we have been to hell and hopefully getting back from hell with regard to the dis- disregard for... Um, for everything really a bit like Joe Biden seems to be doing Our former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern did seems to have similarity with uh, what Canada is going through similarity to what's going on in France similarity to what's going on in Australia it all seemed to hit the road in the last few years and I often say to people so you hated Trump you hated him so this is New Zealanders I'm talking about Margaret what did he do wrong what did he do wrong and they can't tell you what he did wrong. No. I mean, you may not like him either. I don't that's not the point. The the issue is um people seem to get on a wavelength that is very hard to get them off. They that they ride the yeah. wave and they just can't get off it, uh, even when it's rotten to the core. And of course, um your parents went to hell and and look, let's hope they got some solace in the end. Um, but I I can't even reconcile the damage that would do to you working that through your mind for twenty-seven years. Um, It just just beggars belief. How anyone should have to tolerate
1: that—that's a life sentence. It is. And, and it, you know, before we filed the case, we went through 13 years of harassment, which is where, you know, the seventy certified letters, that one grazing season. That that 105-day grazing season was the very first year we were on the ranch. So they started from day one to put that pressure on us to get us off. And, um, you know, to your point, the toll it took was, it. you know, we were all out working and, and gathering cattle. Mom was the one who was home that had to answer the door every day. To the forest service handing her another certified letter saying here's what you're doing wrong knowing we weren't doing anything wrong and knowing it was it was outright harassment and you know the stress really got to her she ended up um passing away at age 54 from a massive stroke and it was all stress related so she died very young and um, and unfortunately she didn't get to see you know she did see us get through summary judgment which was very good But it does, it has a very, it has a physical toll on people being persecuted by their government and, and being kind of a lone voice in that with other people not really understanding what you're going through.
0: Well, and so, so continuing, sorry, Jasper, continuing down this track for just a moment and we don't need to dwell on it too long, but we're seeing this anxiousness, this tension going inside our farm gates in New Zealand. We're seeing it in a big way in the Netherlands and in Ireland and any other country that you can sort of almost think about that thought uh, that farmers had the free right to produce, um, uh, they're now having uh, so much tension put upon them that they, they have, well, some of them are committing suicide. And but there's no one in the regulatory side of life seems to think that they've got blood on their hands. They just don't seem to think that they're causing grief for no good reason. Uh, how... Some of the stuff that they're putting upon us, they can't even define the merits of doing it. Why that? Why they would want to do it? So, you know, when you were on that uh, movie "No Farmers, No Food," that documentary, um, it that was part of the elements. The element of it uh, was around this anxiousness that's being created inside the farm gate and and for the property right and the free enjoyment. So, the upshot is in your country, what? what is the upshot is 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 there any case law now that's saying uh you know that you, these regulatory takings um are unfair yeah uh, they've just got to, got to be hindered
1: well um you know what we I think right now what is saving our nation is our state leaders we have some very good governors that have stood up and challenged the Biden administration um and so that has been very good and the second is our Supreme Court we have a very conservative Supreme Court that is really uh, interpreting the co- our Constitution from a, an originalist perspective, which is good. And so they have already started really pushing back on a lot of things and curbing um, curbing the administrative state's powers. And importantly, when it comes to property rights, there's a case that they decided called Sackett versus U.S., which uh, is the water rights case. And this is where, you know, we get into... Um, the Environmental Protection Agency basically manufactured a definition of what was uh, what were the, the the waters that they could control. The statute, the Clean Water Act, allows them to uh, regulate navigable waters, and of course, they basically wrote a regulation that defined that to mean almost any mud puddle, you know, would qualify. I mean, they just wrote it so it would cover everything, so they would have that broad regulatory power. So that was in the Obama administration. Uh, the states fought that and won that case and pushed those regulations back. Trump came in, rewrote those and made them sensible. And then, of course, Biden came in and he pushed them back out to, you know, something uh, more in the long lines of Obama. So that that process is still being fought. But in the meantime, this great family, and it was just a couple in Idaho that wanted to build a cabin about a quarter of a mile off of a lake and they had their lot and houses were stacked around the cabin they weren't like the only house there and the EPA wouldn't let them let them build because they were impacting the waters of the US and so they went through a number of rounds of cases but finally their case got to the Supreme Court and it was magnificent it was one of the best cases property rights cases we've had in probably 20 30 years but the Supreme Court absolutely pushed back the EPA. They had they had overregulated. They had overextended. What is so important about that is now that is precedent. So once it gets to Supreme Court precedent, then that gives all of us with um, from the property rights perspective a stronger footing. Not even just on water case, water rights cases, but other cases that that apply. So I think that I mean the, the one I'm actually. I'm actually pretty optimistic <laughs> about our, our chances. And that may sound crazy because of what we're facing, but um, there's a couple really good things. Number one, one of the things that our founders said over and over again, if you read through their materials, uh, our founding fathers is the, that America would survive um, if we had an educated, repub- educated citizenry. And we have certainly failed on that front. We have an uneducated citizenry. But um, I still have a lot of faith in our people, and when we can get good information into them and factual information into them, they, you know, people have a good sense of right and wrong. And, um, and I think we can still appeal to that. And that in and of itself changes who people vote for when they get educated on these issues. So, like the film No Farmers No Food. I mean, that is phenomenal, the way that exposed what's happening internationally. And so, I you know there's a lot of reasons I'm pretty optimistic but but we are absolutely facing the greatest attack we've ever had on property rights in America today absolutely but, Don't and, what would you think uh, you know Margaret is referring to EPA
2: that's your environmental protection agency what would you mm-hmm. think is the closest uh, one to that in New Zealand in our perspective oh, which we've got no. so many I
0: Ministry for the Environment, no doubt, is is Because is that DOC one.
2: also would be, you know, yes. we yes. see the Department of Conservation here. We have the Ministry for Environment and all of those all working. And uh, Margaret, you know, one thing that I think, and I, I came from India here nearly 15 years ago, uh, what stands out to me is that for a country of 5 million, that's as compared to even, a, you know, a block in Delhi that's really small, we are regulated here to within an inch of our lives. An inch of our lives. There was this uh, morning here, I was speaking to somebody and I was actually chatting online to someone who makes organic teas and she just sells them from her place. She lost her job with the mandates or something. And she was talking about how she needs to make 10 different plans, then audits, biannual audits, food plan, water safety plan. All this person is doing is drying mm-hmm. herbs, popping them into little bags. And that's the amount of regulation we have. Mm-hmm. And it is little wonder that, I mean, Sometimes I think as compared to the U.S., at least you guys have a constitution. We don't have that. We, And that is because the way I look at your constitution, I think it's more than for the people. It's a check on the regulator, isn't it? That's how I would view it.
1: Yes, our constitution is all about that. That's exactly what it's about is limiting government. You know, the the idea of America's founding, you can kind of summarize it in one thing with one word, which is self-rule very independent that we have the belief that we are capable of governing ourselves and we are capable of governing our country and 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 you know if you think about it we've borne that out to be the best system of government because when america was founded our most sophisticated form of transportation was horse and buggy within 200 years we had a man on the moon you know, and that's and that's because, um, and it wasn't just America, but it was the concept of letting the human ingenuity explode, not being constrained by all these regulations, but having that ability to be independent, to pursue um, your vocation and not be restricted by all of these government rules and regulations. And that was the beginning of America. That's how we were founded in that. And we didn't have this these volumes and volumes of regulations that we have today. And that's when human flourishing really took off and it spread internationally. Mm -hmm. You know, it was everybody benefited from that. And it was seen, and I think rightly so, as the model of how you live um, so that people can be independent and free, have liberty, but liberty um, in a way that's also very respectful of other people. And so it's, you know, it's not a free for all that. Well, there's no laws. It's just there is it's it's self-governance. It's it's a respect for for other people as well. So, you I know, mean, I think our country has borne that out, that that is a system that really works, uh, the type of government that really works. And, you know, our opponents know that. And mm-hmm. and that's what this is all about. Internationally, that's what this is about. This is about removing the ability of citizens to take care of themselves. So when you think about America, what was so important about every American having that opportunity to have a piece of land? Well, that meant they could grow their own food, they could build their own shelter, they could protect their shelter, they could protect their families, and they could also create a product and sell it to the public and generate an income and become prosperous. That's why having a piece of land allows you to do that. Well, when they take that away, when they take those property rights away, they take away our liberty. And so, you know, that's the reason why we're seeing on an international scale the the need to consolidate all the control into one big voluminous, voluminous government, whether it be the UN or the independent nations. Um, and, and the wealthy elite coming together and consolidating all the private side. So you get rid of the small farmer, like no farmers, no food shows, and you consolidate, you know, meat production into two or three corporations. Everything is becoming consolidated because it takes away the ability of the people to be independent. And if we're not independent, then what are we? We're serfs.
0: Mm Yep. Uh, that look, all this stuff uh, resonates with with us, uh, Margaret. Everything you're talking about—it's interesting to me, though. How the uh, our universities, our institutions, uh, everything has been sort of infiltrated so easily uh, over many decades, but but quite easily uh, to the point where where the planners and the consultants and um, the people that feed off of that. Um, are sort of all pervasive and dominant in our society. I mean, these are people that only produce documents and rules, but we pay. <laughs> exactly. but, but we're paying them. And in New Zealand, I've often said in New Zealand, the uh, and it's perhaps same anywhere in the world. The genesis of everything is the harvest from the environment, whether it's the land, the sea, or the scenery, and it's paying the bills for everybody. So. The regulatory, my view is the regulatory side, the planners and the consultants and the people that are are educators and everyone around that are um, all feeding off the environment at the same time they're telling me to produce less.
1: Yeah. And
0: it's all all going to be fun and fine and dandy. Uh, I just don't see how they can't see, I don't see how they can't see the contradiction in that.
1: Um, Well, they do. I mean, and that's what we have to understand about our opponents. They absolutely know what they're doing. You know, there's not, um, the people who don't know what what is going on are kind of, you know, I I don't mean to sound derogatory, but they're really pawns in this. You know, they're, they're the ones who are not educated. They're buying into the social agenda. It's a cause to them. They believe in it. And they are really being duped. But the people at the top that are um, pushing this agenda, they absolutely know what they're doing. And when you really study them, and, and you, cause you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, who's gonna produce the food? I mean, that's one of the questions out of No Farmers, No Food, who's gonna produce the food? Well, that's not a concern for them because these same people also believe in population control. So if there's fewer people to feed, that's how they plan to solve the problem, not that we need more food. Um, so, and I know it sounds kind of crazy and demented, and I actually hate saying these things outside because it is crazy and demented, Mm -hmm. but, but when you read their material, you know, you have to be, you have to be honest about it in understanding what is their motivation and that's their motivation. And so, and when you understand what they're after, then you know how to fight them. It helps you figure out how to fight them. So uh, that's why they're not concerned about food production. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so what we're going through, and, and as we look at these problems and, and we look at it from that moral standpoint, you know, how are we going to feed people? Because that's important to us because we care about life. Um, that, that's our concern, but that, that's just not theirs.
0: So, so Margaret, before we carry on with some other stuff like your 30 by 30, I'd like to know how you would approach this subject, because even an hour ago, I was speaking to a local farmer. Who was in the presence of a group of other farmers yesterday who were willing to sell out all farmers to what's called limit setting so nutrient limit setting on your farm so uh you know the the nitrates that may leach or the phosphates that may go across your land and and, and run off in terms of sediment and things like that so they'll they've got these groups of farmers saying yes we can on behalf of everybody Now, my view is those people that are duped into doing that should have the threat of legal action put against them because they have no right to be saying, yes, we can on behalf of all farmers. And of course, the regulator gets a free pass because he says, oh, but we've got 10 farmers over here who say this is all okay." How would you fight back on that? Because. That's a fundamental in this country that I've observed time and time again, farmers willing to sign the documents and say, yes, we can, and all other farmers should too.
1: Well, you know, a lot of these things come down to character, Mm. and um, we're having the same issue in our nation where our government under the Biden administration is handing money out hand over fist to farmers and ranchers to get them into these conservation programs which then creates a federal nexus to their land. Uh-huh. And that's what the government's after is that control of the land. But, um, you know, we're seeing the same thing where people aren't standing up and looking at it, realizing this is actually going to create a problem for me down the road or for future generations. And so in essence, they are selling out, you know, to um, taking the money instead of of standing and defending property rights. And And so, you know, as far as legal action, I'm not being terribly familiar with, with your laws. I'm not sure how to answer that, but I know in our situation, you know, when people ask me, well, you know, I've, I want to enroll in this conservation program. Should I or shouldn't I? And my advice is I, I believe that private property that is unencumbered without any federal ties to it at all is going to be the most valuable commodity in the future. And anybody who can keep their property out of these federal programs or government programs on any continent are going to be in a very, very good situation yeah
0: new zealand is unique uh that we don't have any privilege uh like a subsidy a production subsidy uh we had that removed from us in 1985 and to me that was the gold standard so um you should never ever take money from the state or any incentive Mm -hmm. from the state or you're compromised and i think that's what you're saying here that the compromising is a problem um but but the problem i have is that those property potential is being stolen by the regulator without compensation for the takings of that property potential and no one seems to want to stand up for it in New Zealand Uh, we're here uh, constantly told that farmers emissions whether they're methane or nitrous oxide or their nitrate leaching is all deleterious to the planet Um, we now know that methane and nitrous oxide uh, emissions from any source doesn't matter whether it's from animals or not is pretty much irrelevant in terms of global warming uh, at all but we're not told that the whole country has been brainwashed and believing we're all bad so the compensation for takings angle in our country should be pure as can be because we don't have any of this as you call it, the nexus of uh, nexus of having an offset over here for something over here Uh, but in new zealand we don't have a constitution we have a bill of rights uh, which is pretty meek. And then on top of that, that was 1990, I think, reform. Maybe it's had some reforms since then that I'm not up to date with. But the RMA, the Resource Management Act, came in 1991. And you might note that these dates are very similar to the time of the Rio Agenda and the yeah. like. Yeah, um, and, sure. and there, there is no compensation for takings under the Resource Management Act in New Zealand um apparently it was in the draft it was removed in the in the final um, document so New Zealand regulators have pretty much got an unfettered uh, yeah they've got a they can take without uh without worrying about it so much and we don't know I think what I'm getting at we don't know how Or I don't think we've found the way to fight back and we've had thirty years of this, and it's building every year to even a bigger, um, bigger sway on. So, um, yeah, it's 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 interesting that you're facing stuff, but from from a each state, I imagine has different privileges that they've given their farmers or, or their landowners. Uh, so we're all in a bit of a bind because I have the same same, and I know I'm ranting on here, but Netherlands has another problem as well. They talk about uh, you know, how their farms are being shut down, but they've taken production subsidies, they've taken environmental grants, they've taken so they're basically and they've sold their soul. How can you come back from that and expect your property right to be upheld? How would you view that? Because I I just I don't see how this works.
1: Yeah, I uh, you know, I have the same perspective. You just you if you take that federal funding or the funding from the state. They have a say in your property. Mm, I mean, mm. you may not think so, but I know in America, there's enough laws on the books that, that all of a sudden they're going to start applying to you that they wouldn't otherwise. So, you know, it's the same, it's the same concept. And I guess if you kind of pull back a little bit and just in understanding property and how important property is, um, our ability to own property is what protects our individual liberties. And if we can't defend that property, and if we can't protect it from the taking by a federal entity or anybody, or a state or another individual, we do not have a property right. And and so you know, the property, the ownership of property, where why that's so important to our liberty is because every every source of wealth starts from the natural resources. And so whoever owns those natural resources is going to control the government and whoever controls the government is going to decide how much, how much, how much of the liberty do the people have, or do they not have every war that we see that's going on right now. You look at Ukraine and Russia, what's that over? It's over territory. They want more land. What's going on in Israel and Hamas. I mean, there's other issues obviously involved, but it's about territory. They want more land because they know Control of the land controls the people. And so um, I think as individuals, and I really see this as an American, I look at every time I do something to my property that diminishes that right or gives a piece of that away to the government is taking liberty away from future generations that they will never get back. So to me, it's a moral issue. And you know I don't know if that helps apply in that situation, but I think... All of these problems stem from the individual. You know, when you talk about how do you solve these problems? First, you have to get the individual's beliefs and principles correct and aligned properly. And then you've got to get the family aligned properly. And then you've got to get the community aligned properly. And so, and then that spills up into the state and into the federal. But that's where it starts. And um, I think what you're pointing out in that conversation are the farmers that are willing to give that up. They're, the principles personally are what are suffering. And that is that is indicative of the nation. I see it here in America as well. Yep.
2: I'll bring something, uh, an article, and I'm sure, Don, you've read this from the New Zealand perspective, but uh, late last year, Margaret, we had this article uh, on one of our MSM calling for a push to value nature as a trillion dollar asset. The article began, its it was from Deloitte and Partners. We have these I mean, just like you, Deloitte and KPMD, these big international accounting firms. So they begin, began by saying that, according to uh, Banking on Nature, our major. Uh, they said we're making a big economic case for investing in natural assets because it is a necessity. Then Deloitte goes on to quote, the World Economic Forum <laughs> estimates more than half of the world's capital is a whopping US $44 trillion and is highly dependent on nature. But then, I mean, this is, you know, you already know these bigger accounting firms work with UN and World Economic Forum. What goes on, what this article goes on to say next is what put the chill into me. Lee Gray, the New Zealand Deloitte partner, one of the New Zealand Deloitte partners said, investing in natural capital fits in with the intergenerational long-term lens of the Maori, that's the New Zealand population, uh, worldviews. This, he said, includes the philosophy that humans don't own land. So he's telling Mm -hmm. that the indigenous Maori population, let's look at their worldview, that humans don't own land. Instead, we need to act as guardians, protecting the land and holding the responsibility to pass on it to the next in a better condition. They are now like literally saying it. You don't own land. You do. You just Pass it on, and we've had so much of uh, divide and rule in New Zealand. You know, suddenly this country has exploded into looking at everything through a cultural lens, through what would probably be called as a Eurocentric or a Maori worldview. Or I don't know where people like me, fresh off the boat, fit in here. But time and again, we are weaponizing now culture to push that same nonsense. It it is relentless comes on from every direction. If you don't want to look at it, hey, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Let's start pushing this worldview. And as I was saying earlier, Don has had at least one elected member tell him, didn't you, Don, that the world only needs uh, 1 billion people?
0: He said um, the the agenda was 2 billion, but his preference was 1 billion. And it was him, to his credit, who spooked me into reading about the progressive movement of the late 1890s uh, and then just following the wiring diagram right through to today, really. So
2: this is a bureaucrat, uh, uh, currently an elected member, who's been in local government here for over three decades in various roles. This is what they seem to think it is about.
1: Yeah, you know, what's so interesting about that that worldview is um, they say individuals don't need to own property. Well, somebody's going to own it, which is ultimately going to be an individual because somebody has to enforce that. Yeah, And so, you know, when you really break down what they're talking about, they're, they're saying you and I don't get to own property, they get to own property. Mm-hmm. So it's an elitist viewpoint. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's the message, I think, when people start really understanding that, that I think we will start seeing an uprising against this type of thinking. And, and I'm still kind of waiting for that moment when that turns. I think we're starting to see it in a few places. But um, the way I look at their arguments is they're built on sand. There is no foundation. I mean, this whole concept of natural assets, it is, <laughs> it's not based on a supply and demand economy. Yeah. You know they are, ma- they are trying to put a price tag on the air we breathe. And yep. um, exactly. And, and so if we, if we get back to what is the fundamental element of property? Well, there's two things. Number one, control. Do you control it or not? Number two, can you exclude somebody from using it? If you can exclude somebody from using it, that's your property. In other words, I have a piece of land. If you want to use it and I give you permission, that's great. But unless I give you permission, you can't use it. So that's property. So when we talk about air and putting a price tag on air, which is how they're getting to this $5,000 trillion natural asset market, Mm. uh, world economy is by... Monetizing things like air and water and ecosystem services. So you put a price tag on the air, but how do you exclude somebody from uh, breathing in their portion of air? You know, you can't do it. And the other thing that's, that's really idiotic about that is they're, they're monetizing things that, um, every individual has to have to live and is not a, not a result of whether you work for it or not. It's, it's simply, It's simply the way we are designed, the way the world is designed. And, you know, God created those things. We didn't. And nobody has a right to own those. And so it's really interesting what they're doing. They're completely flipping the economic system with this natural asset approach. And again, I mean, that's how we see 30 by 30, that huge agenda, which we're fighting in America to permanently protect 30% of the world's lands and oceans. 30 by 30 is there to clear title. That's what it's doing. It's not about conservation. It's to get the small farmer and landowner off the land so that uh, those same entities that are pushing that can come in behind, create the natural asset companies, and basically gobble up all these assets and and own the world's resources through these investment firms. So they all work hand in hand. And if you kind of step back and put all the pieces together, it starts making sense but, but we look at the natural asset company development in America, and we simply call it a Ponzi scheme because yeah. it really it really will not work. And I don't think it's intended to work. It yeah. just needs to work long enough to clear titles so they gain control of the assets. And people okay. give up. And that's how the machinery works, doesn't it? It just wears yeah. you
2: down just constantly, like you're talking about your parents' case, nearly three decades long. As John said, that's a life yeah. sentence. But American Stewards for Liberty, and I should mention your website at this point. That's AmericanStewards.us. So this was founded, you said, after that case, you know, for the Fifth Amendment that your parents took to, took to court. Can you tell us a bit more about? Uh, you told us before the beginning of this, uh, we began recording, that uh, you're in your third hotel room and you're traveling. Can you tell <laughs> us a bit more about what you guys actually do? How do you work? How are you organized? And yeah. So we can have some inspiration going around in New Zealand to get a bit more organized here.
1: Absolutely. So a lot of what we do is education. Mm-hmm. So uh, we will will dissect these problems and um, get them back out to our people, our membership, which are largely farmers and ranchers, and um, to keep them informed on what's going on in the nation. So that when it comes to elections, when it comes to any programs that are being implemented in their area, they'll recognize them for what they are and they'll know how to fight them. That's one thing we do. The other thing we do is we do work with policy leaders um, and make recommended policies and help um, brief them on issues that are going on uh, across the nation. But it's really, I kind of look at us as as kind of the coordinated offense, so when an issue comes up, um, because all of these issues, you know, whether it be 30 by 30 or NACs or any of these, they have to be implemented at the local level. Every property rights issue, the regulation has to be implemented at the local level. So we spend a lot of our time strengthening the local level. And that's why we work with a lot of county commissioners. So if we were in your country, we'd be working with you a lot and, and being your support as, as the, the local government. And um, helping you understand the issues, helping you know how to fight them, uh, helping to know who to call um, so that your voice and it can be very impactful. But so we do we spend a lot of time really on the ground, which is why I'm traveling right now. We actually get out in the field and and um, and work closely with our commissioners and the landowners to educate them. And then their voice is often what we convey back to the leaders in D.C., and um, so we kind of try to connect the two, so there's not, so there's there's not a, a gap between those two. But a lot of what we do, I think, is is you would call coordinated offense. When these issues come up, we'll pull all the pieces together: the um, the lawyers, with um, the policymakers, with the grassroots, to push a consorted campaign to keep something like thirty by thirty from happening, or the iterations of this happening in the in the different areas so so how do
0: you, excuse me how do you stop uh the politicization of that i mean you're doing this coordinated offense but everywhere you would look i'm sure there will be because i know the size of the lobbyist groups in the united mm-hmm. states there will be thousands of people pushing against you um with a political agenda uh how how do you keep saying and all this stuff because i it just i despair at this stuff
1: well, I will tell you I was given some really good advice when Biden was um elected and our country was deflated. Um I personally love Trump uh, and I think he did some fabulous things for our nation and for our issues and I don't have a problem with him. He is an equal opportunity offender. So he's going to offend all of us at some time, but boy he gets the work done. So I'm a huge Trump Trump fan, but um right after Biden was elected, I was given some really good advice because I was saying, how are we going to get people to understand what's going on? And and it was an 80-year-old lady who looked at me and she said, Margaret, don't worry about changing their minds. You just have to beat them. And so like, it took a weight off my shoulders. Said, That's right. I'm not going to try and change their mind. We're just going to outsmart them. And um, And we did that on 30 by 30. And just to give you guys a little bit of hope, because that, I think that's actually a really good um, a really good place to start as far as how to fight back. Um, we were once Biden was elected, we started pouring through the environmental materials uh, to find out what they were going to be proposing in America, and that's when I first started reading about thirty by thirty. And so we really dug into it. We saw it coming up in all their literature. and We thought this is his agenda. This is how he's going to try and take the property. So we were ready for the 30 by 30 agenda. And from the moment he took office, I read every executive order he signed until day six. He finally signed the one that implemented 30 by 30 in America and then contacted our local counties. Like So I'd be contacting you and saying, hey, this is what's going on. This is what he's doing. And um, we had a county in Colorado that said, OK, let's do a resolution to oppose it. So we hired a, an attorney. We got to get a resolution done in three weeks we had the first resolution passed and a whole QA book booklet put together that people could download so they could understand what 30 by 30 was, because most people hadn't even heard about this. So that's how we, we we pulled the information together, make it understandable for people so they can act. Spread that out to our network. We don't have a huge network, but I call our network super spreaders. They will send it to 10, 15, 100 other, of their closest friends. And so in a matter of about three months, we had about 80 of these resolutions passed across the country. And so every time they were passed by a local government, there was a local news article. Well, then they started becoming regional news articles, and then they started hitting the national media, this opposition. And it was all grassroots. And we also were able to get the attention of a really good governor in Nebraska, Governor Ricketts, who's now Senator Ricketts. And um, within, I mean, the first week of March, he came out and opposed this and then led a letter to the other governors. And so he was very good at getting it educated. And we had a really good leader in Congress who went back with the information and she spread it like wildfire. So what the dynamics at the time is our opponents, the environmentalists thought we were out of commission we were deflated. We had been pounded down and beat down so bad by the election that they could just put in whatever they wanted. So they were kind of Gleefully, um, you know, enjoying this ride of implementing 30 by 30 while we were doing the work from the grassroots up to the point that when they finally realized there was opposition and there was a lot of opposition and, um, it was already branded in the press as a land grab and they couldn't undo that. So by May of 2021, so just three months later, what did they do? Well, they changed the name. They changed the yes. name of the program. Now the, now the program is called America the Beautiful. And so, but you know that's like a moment that's when you know you've really got them. and still to this day they can't argue us on the facts. Everything that they are building it on is built on sand. And so our material stands up to every attack that they have that they have gone after every I, they've made a lot of personal attacks, which we never respond to, but um, every attack um substantively our material stands up to. and so that was the beginning. And that really took the cells out from underneath them. They were planning just to roll this across America without any opposition. And they found out they had considerable opposition. And it started from the ground, ground, the grassroots, you know, the individual, the county commissioner is sitting there saying, no, we're not going to let this happen. We're passing a resolution. The local citizen who says, we're not going to let this happen in our community. Our community is going to say no and takes it to our county commissioner you know and and it, so it starts with that educational process of getting people to oppose this from the ground up and that works its way up through the rest of the political system and so we have a really good base of people in America now that understand what 30 by 30 is and they are fighting it you know on every front that they can which has really slowed it down hasn't stopped it but it's certainly slowed it down
0: Okay, so and on that front, um, is can you give us a little bit of the C40 cities concept that you've written about as mm-hmm. well, just as an adjunct to all of this, and then we'll have to, to wind up? But, um, yeah, what's that, uh, what's that sentiment like in the States?
1: Well, so there are 40 cities across America that have signed on to the C40 concept, which is they will – it's, it's like if you've heard about the 15-minute cities, that's something else that it's been called. <laughs> so they want to limit the transportation of people. You'll only have um, so many hours that, that you are allowed to travel, um, a certain amount of distance. Uh, there's no meat, no meat and sold inside the cities. Um, a whole bunch of these kind of just the liberal um, progressive regulations that they're trying to do. And so, unfortunately, we've had 40 cities in America agree to this and work towards getting to this C40 status. And one of them, unfortunately, is 40 miles from where we live. So we're really seeing the fruits of what that looks like. It is rampant crime, rampant homelessness um, yeah. that's going on. You know, a city that that really 10 years ago was, was very safe and it was a travel destination, worldwide travel destination. Now people are afraid to go there an awful lot like San Francisco. You know, we're looking just like that, and it's because of the C40 concept and um, all of that being put in place. It's the way to destroy to destroy a city.
0: Well, and you called them liberal progressives, and I have a view that they're um, exactly the opposite. They are um, they regressive and uh, the opposite of liberal, illiberal, perhaps. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and just and I might I might steal
1: that from you. <laughs> I might start using that over here. <laughs> I don't know what's happened. The left
2: used to rage against the machine, didn't they? Literally. Yes, and, they did. And now they seem to, it's like, again, I've used this earlier, but govern me harder, daddy. That's that's how they seem to look at this. If I look at the yeah. C40 city's own blurb, they say, our organization knows climate, social, and economic justice can only be achieved together. And that's why our mission is to halve the emissions of member cities. Within a decade. Now, unlike you, Margaret, we've had just one city sign up, but that one is bad enough. It's Auckland. That's home to a third of New Zealand's population. And when I tell somebody who's heading up there for a weekend of shopping or something, and I tell them, you know, well, do it while you can. uh, According to their roadmap for urban consumption, you'd just be allowed nine new clothes a year, eight if you're lucky, three if they get really ambitious. And they look at me like I've grown horns, but that's also symptomatic. I think of the laziness we've suddenly. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I look around and people don't want to read. It's another seventy-page volume. The future of urban consumption in C40 cities, but I sometimes think a reality check will only
1: come when the pain becomes personal. Yeah, and that, and you know, I think that's that's why I have a lot of faith in America because um, you know we've been living the dream for a long time. Mm. and people are starting to wake up and realize oh my gosh the president's actually doing this i mean even things our border how open our border is and what is pouring across our border is really scary and um i don't know if you remember how america pulled out of the of Af- afghanistan and that debacle yeah. oh yeah that shocked that shocked americans because i mean as 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 individual americans we never ever thought our government would be that irresponsible. I mean, absolutely irresponsible in that situation. So things like that have happened. Where, what I, what I, where I see the hope is, you know, when we started this organization 30 years ago, um, I could have given the same discussion that we just talked about about property rights, and I would have been in a room full of people glazing over. Mm-hmm. Right now, when we talk about property rights in America, people are sitting up and paying attention, and it's like the light bulb turns on. They have forgotten how important property rights are to our individual liberties, but they're starting, because of all of the extreme things going on worldwide, they're now paying attention and they're looking for answers. And so, that's why I actually have a lot of hope because I, I'm running into people all the time that would have completely just glazed over with what we're talking about today. And now they're saying, wait a minute, okay, that makes sense. That I makes get sense. that." Yep, yeah, yep, exactly. yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's only so many times people can
2: see, because uh, I remember that uh, pulling out when the U.S. pulled out, oh. was it a dozen Marines that were blown up by the suicide bomber at Kabul airport at the same time when a bloke dressed in a skirt was talking about LGBTQ rights of the uh, U.S. Right. military bloke on uh, Twitter. And yes. I remember my brother, ex-Indian Army officer, he and I were chatting about, what is this going on? Seriously, what the hell has happened? And yeah. You know, people will will get a reality check, realisation sooner or later. But uh, Don, yeah. what do you think? 30 years of being in this?
0: Well, arch- I, I often use the term comfortably numb, um, Margaret, because uh, my fellow farmers have been comfortably numb while, well, I'm, I'm guessing less than 10 of us around the whole country seem to have the same thinking that I had. And I just... I struggle to live with this, um, that uh, it's a future that I don't want for this country, uh, but we don't seem to have the courage to to tackle it the way you are, with the enthusiasm you are, Margaret, because we have uh, what I would say is a bunch of appeasers. Farmers have learned to be appeasers because they've been so browbeaten. Um, and, yeah. of course, the urbanites um, don't feel this, I, and that's a concern that I have even just listening to you, that I haven't got a feeling uh, that the city populations, the big city populations of the United States are getting the, to grips with, with this. I know certainly where where my family lives in California, they don't feel this sort of tension that that I feel. So yeah, I think we've all got a long ways to go. Um, that's my view, we but do. I, I I think you've put on a great um, a great show today and for us to and our listeners because you have put up given us some hope actually given us some hope and uh, you know we've had an hour of your time and I think we could have had two hours of your time or three hours of your time so I'm hoping that we'll get you back uh, in the future and um, perhaps I might even have my thoughts all organized a bit better than I had because there's so much in here I don't know how you've distilled it down so I mean you're paid to to distill it down and I'm not perhaps but um, (laughs) uh, it's it's the way you've presented your case is better than um that i've heard in new zealand so for that we're grateful that our listeners at least are going to hear someone who has distilled it down and presents it in a manner that is understandable because yeah new zealanders just aren't talking about this nearly enough so margaret thank you for coming on to rcr greenwash today and um, may you um have a successful um time telling your story in the weeks and months and years ahead. Thank you again.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for joining us. And, you know, I was listening to
2: your father's, uh, I was reading your father's passing of his passing in New York Times, and I'm sure he'd be very proud. The article entirely mm-hmm. listed of all that he went through and you're carrying on the mantle. Thank you so much for doing this,
0: Margaret. This thank is you. This is great it. service. Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR Reality Check Radio.